So as Christians, we have a kind of weird relationship with the Old Testament sometimes. I mean, even, even you've heard from me say things like, okay, here's our Bible reading plan, and we go through the New Testament every year, but we take three years to go through the Old Testament. I've advised many of you personally that, you know, if you're just beginning to get experience with the Scriptures, you're just kind of getting familiar with the Scriptures, just read the New Testament. Read that two, three, four times in a row. Go through that. Get familiar with that, and then go back and read the Old Testament. And it almost comes across like we have a, a fear of the Old Testament or, you know, we, we think there's something not quite right with it or, you know, we're not sure if we really should embrace it. And so we have this kind of weird relationship. We claim openly we believe the Old Testament is the Word of God, but then we kind of treat it like it's second class somehow. And, and some of that comes from knowing how radical Jesus was in His teaching. Some of that comes from understanding or beginning to understand the freedom that we have because we're Christians. We begin to realize that though this book is the authority, it is a delegated authority in the sense that Jesus Himself is the authority and He communicates that authority through His Word. And it's interesting because he, he presented himself this way. Very early on in his ministry, he presented himself as the authority. And because of that, the religious leaders of his day were concerned. They were worried. They thought, does this guy take the Scriptures seriously? Remember, when Jesus was preaching, when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, all, the only Scriptures we had were the Old Testament Scriptures. And so he's dealing with that issue. He's, he's, he's dealing with this issue of what should be the view of the Old Testament. How should we deal with the Old Testament? In fact, what he wants to do is get right to the heart of the Old Testament. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so he starts off really plainly kind of addressing this concern that these religious people might have or the people that heard him might have. He says, don't think that he came to destroy or loosen or take apart the law and the prophets. Law or the prophets is just a way to say Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In fact, he says, listen, heaven and earth, the universe is going to collapse before the word of God lacks fulfillment. It's all going to come to pass. All the things that God says are going to come to pass. And so Jesus comes off right, right in the beginning to make it really clear. He came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to actually fulfill it. And there's kind of three ways he fulfills it. Really quick, I want to give these to you. The first way he fulfills the, the Old Testament is he fills it uh, prophetically, you might say. He fulfills its predictions. Matthew's Gospel specifically brings this out. In the beginning of Matthew's Gospels, uh, it says, and this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And you see that phrase or a similar phrase throughout the whole book of Matthew. This is fulfilling the word of God. This is fulfilling the word spoken by the prophet. And so all these predictions about who the Messiah would be, where the Messiah would be born, what the Messiah would do, those are fulfilled by Jesus himself. But he also fulfills the law this way. He fulfills it practically in that he fulfilled its requirements. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. The author of Hebrews tells us this. He says, we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, how hard it is to keep the law, in other words, but was in all points tempted as we are, notice, yet without Sin. Don't forget when Jesus was on trial before he's crucified, the only sin they could accuse him of, the only law they could accuse him of breaking was blasphemy because he claimed to be God, which would be blasphemy unless, of course, you are God, and he is. They couldn't even find any fault against him. He fulfilled the law practically fulfilled its requirements. And thirdly, ultimately, he fulfills its purpose. Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And so when Jesus says, listen, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it, he means that prophetically, practically, and ultimately, he's the fulfillment of the law. But it's interesting because you would think, okay, he says that, then we don't need the law anymore because we have Jesus. But look what he says in verse 19. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's actually confirming the authority of Scripture. He's saying, listen, it's not an option for you. The the people he's speaking to, remember he's speaking from last week, he's speaking to his disciples, but for the benefit of the audience. He's saying, those who choose to follow me, if you're following me, it's not an option to deny the authority of Scripture. You need to submit to the authority of Scripture. You need to know what God says, and you need to do what God says. This is what he's trying to say. Now, interesting uh, <clears throat> that this is similar to what his, uh, his half-brother would say later on in the book of James. I'm going to read from the NLT, New Living Translation, because I like the way it sort of words this. But this is the words of Jesus' half-brother James about doing the Word. Listen what he says. But don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Notice he says that, the, that James says that looking into God's law, looking into Scripture is like looking into a mirror. It shows you what's really there. And the issue is it's too exposed to show where there's a hair out of place. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> it shows you if there's a spot you need to deal with. It shows you if you have mud on your face. It shows you that so that you can do something about it. And he says you wouldn't have a mirror so you could go, oh, look at that. I'm bleeding out my nose. Oh, well, and walk away. <laughs> you go, oh, no, what's that? I've got to do something about that. A mirror shows you what you are so you can do something about what you are, what you look like. And so James is basically echoing what his big brother Jesus had said on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, you need to do what God's Word says. You need to hear what it says and do what it says. So Jesus doesn't lower the standard. He doesn't lower the authority of Scripture. But what he does do is this. Look at verse 20. It says, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we mentioned last week, we saw last week how Jesus said, right, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we gave a really basic definition for righteousness as things as they ought to be, but a more complex definition or more complete definition would be righteousness speaks of right relationship with God and with each other. So to be righteous means I'm in right relationship with God, I'm doing what God would have me do, and I'm in right relationship with others. I'm doing what God would how God would have me treat other people. I'm treating God as he deserves. I'm treating others as God tells me to. That's righteousness. Okay? We're blessed, Jesus says, if we hunger and thirst after that. God, I want to treat you as you deserve, and I want to treat others as you call me to. Now, when Jesus says to these people, to his disciples, to the audience that that are around listening, thousands probably listening to Jesus on this day, when he says your righteousness has to exceed that of scribes and Pharisees, they would have been, (gasps) what? It's basically saying, you need to be more holy than the Pope. Culturally, that's what it would have felt like. They would have thought, what you, more holy than the Pope? How does that work? Now, now the, the issue would be that, that these guys, they looked at Pharisees. See, we, we get, because of Jesus' teaching, we have an understanding of some of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But you have to understand, in this day, when Jesus is writing this, they didn't, see, they didn't hear Pharisee and go hypocrite. They heard Pharisee, they heard scribe, and they thought, hero. That is, they, they were the... They were the spirit, they were the Olympic athletes, spiritually speaking, of their day. So that when they hear you have to be, have to have a righteousness that exceeds theirs, or you don't get in, that's like saying, listen, you gotta be faster than a world-class sprinter, or you don't go to heaven. Cool. What are you gonna do with that? I, I quit. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm just, I give up. How's that gonna work? How can I possibly be more righteous than a Pharisee or a scribe? 
Now remember, you, might, you may or may not know this, but the scribes were, just like the word says, they were scribes. They wrote down things. They basically copied and made new copies of the Old Testament Scriptures for people to read. And that was a very uh, important job. It was a very meticulous job. They would do it one letter at a time. So like if they were copying Genesis 1, just kind of assuming it was in English, I know it wasn't, but Genesis 1, it would be like, in the beginning. They wouldn't write in the beginning. They'd write, I. And they'd look at the original, look at the copy. I. N. N. Space. Space. I mean, that's how they would do it. And they would go through and read it. If, if they got through the bottom of the page, all through Genesis 1, and there was one mistake, they would take the mistaken copy and they would burn it. Because they wanted to make sure that it was, it was so meticulously copied and followed through. Now, you can imagine if you're doing that, I, I, N, N, space, space, through all the Old Testament Scriptures, you're going to know the Scriptures pretty well. And so these guys were considered experts in the law. Now the Pharisees, these were people, in fact, the name Pharisee comes from a word that means separatist. That's what they were. That They were those that didn't want to allow their religion to be corrupted by the culture. They were the ones that made sure that, man, we didn't let the world influence us. And so they, they would just basically avoid anything that they thought would corrupt them. So you have these experts on the Scripture itself, those who know what it says, and these experts on those who supposedly do what it says. They're, they're, they're saying, okay, this is what it needs to look like. You might say the experts on the text and the experts on the application. And these were the people that the common people would assume knew what they were doing. They knew what it meant to be right with God and right with others. So that when Jesus says, your righteousness needs to super exceed that, they're going, there's no way. We can do this. But this brings us to the heart of the Old Testament. The reason we have God's given us His law. It's for this. It's to reveal our need. It's to show us how far we fall short. See, Jesus calls us to a higher righteousness. He's calling us not to just what the Pharisees or the scribes would define as righteousness, but something much higher. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were into outward conformity, but they didn't realize they, had, they needed an inward change. So Jesus has to say to them, listen, in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So they had all the outward show, but their hearts were still hard against God. The righteousness that Jesus is going to call us to or is calling us to is not just about repeating truth, but living it out. Not just be able to know, hey, chapter and verse, here's what it says, or here's what it means, but actually living it out. Listen, Jesus says this, Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, because they, for they say and do not do. They don't practice what they preach. And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not the righteousness I'm calling to you to. You can't, it's not just, hey, do you have the right outward conformity? Do you know chapter and verse of Scripture? No. He's saying, do you have an inward change? Are you living out what God has said? It's more, listen, it's not just about some sort of religious Commitment. It's about what the Bible calls regeneration. How many of you guys have heard that word before, regeneration? Some of you guys? It's kind of a big word. You're kind of like, I think, I don't want to, he's going to ask me what it means. It's a big word, but it is a biblical word. Here's what regeneration means. We'll put it in the words of Jesus. This is, I'm reading from John chapter 3. Again, the New Living Translation, because I like the way this says it. This is Jesus speaking to one of these Pharisees. In fact, it was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who actually did believe Jesus was the Messiah, or at least suspected as such. And so Jesus says to him, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, that's what regeneration is, being born again, you cannot see the kingdom of 
heaven. In other words, you can't even understand what it is until you're born again. He says, I, surely, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Regeneration is this. Listen, it is your spirit being given new life. See, here's what the Bible says. Here's what Jesus taught. That we are, naturally speaking, dead spiritually. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And as someone once said, dead guys don't dance. You can ask a dead guy to dance, but you know what he does? Nothing. You know why? He's dead. When the Bible says about spiritual death, it's this idea that we are incapable of meriting anything from God. We are incapable of getting from God what we need or giving to God what's required. We're dead. We cannot do the things that He would require. Death also means separation. We're separated from relationship. We're dead. And so there's a need for us to be born Again, we need a resurrection life. This is important. Listen, if you, if you want to tune out after this, that's fine. But listen to this, please. Because here's the reality. According to Jesus, every single human being needs to be born again. They need regeneration, not just religious commitment. This is really important because many of you are churched You come here every Sunday. Or before you came here, you went to another church. Maybe you grew up in church. Many of you are churched. But being churched doesn't make you righteous. Being committed religiously doesn't make you righteous. Memorizing Scripture doesn't make you righteous. Having a daily quiet time doesn't make you righteous. Avoiding the big sins in life doesn't make you righteous. You need something more. Being a Christian, as far as Jesus is concerned, being righteous, as far as Jesus is concerned, requires that the Spirit of God do a supernatural work and cause us to be born again, regenerated. Do you know what grieves us as pastors more than anything else? The the thing that concerns us more than anything else is one day we're going to face God and we're going to find out on Judgment Day how many people in our congregation were not born again? I mean, people who serve well, people who give, people who are good, good to their families, people that might even have a, a level of high moral character, yet they have not been, as Jesus said, born again, regenerated. See, this is, this is, I'm saying this to you not in, in, a, in the form of judgment at all. I'm saying to you this in, 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 the, in, like in the form of hope. <laughs> Speaking of the need for regeneration is not me trying to condemn anybody. It wasn't Jesus trying to condemn anybody. When Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed the, the scribes and the Pharisees, he's saying, listen, there's a whole new standard that you need to be aware of. These religious boneheads are leading you astray because they're making you think you can do it, man. Just try a little harder. You can do it, and you cannot. Because the righteousness you need to know my Father far exceeds that of these religious leaders. You must be born again. You need regeneration. I'm going to ask you a really serious question before we move on. Have you been born again? Do you know in your heart of hearts? You don't need to answer back to me. I, you could say yes to me, and that doesn't mean I know. Do you know? See, I know that I've been regenerated. I'm not saying I've never doubted that. I have, especially when I've been in rebellion to God, doing stupid things and didn't want to turn back to God and stop doing those stupid things. I wondered, am I really saved? Have I really been born again? I've thought that. And rightly so. But I know that I know that I know that I know that God has done something in me 
And the work that he began in me, he will finish it. And I know because my faith is not in me, it's in Jesus. And I wouldn't put my faith in Jesus unless God would have drawn me to Jesus by the work of his Holy Spirit. And many of you, I see the evidence of God's grace, God's work in your life. I see that evidence, but only you can know, have you been born again? Does your righteousness, does your rightness with God, your relationship with God, your relationship with others, does that flow from a new life that God's given you as a free gift through faith in Jesus? Or are you just a modern-day Pharisee or a scribe doing what others would deem to be religiously adequate? Now, Jesus says these things, and I can imagine at this point, these people are going, oh my goodness, what are we getting ourselves into? <laughs> I, can, I sort of imagine the disciples, sort of, they're, you can remember, they're in the front, you, you know, they follow Jesus up to the hill, you remember from last week, and so this, this is the scene that we're still on, and they're kind of all sitting around Jesus, and as he says this, they're kind of looking around nervously, <laughs> yeah, go Jesus, what's he talking about? How does that work? They're thinking, oh no, what is, how does this expose us? Okay, maybe he's more righteous than the Pharisees and scribes, but we're not, so what's this, what's this, how does this make us look? I say that because that's how I feel right now. <laughs> that's how I felt in preparation. Man, I'm going to talk about righteousness and right with God and not being a hypocrite. Oh man, talk about being exposed. But understand what Jesus is wanting to bring these guys to. The whole reason for the Sermon on the Mount is to lay out for his disciples, here's what I'm going to produce in you if you follow me. A righteousness that far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Not just outward conformity, but inward change. Not just speaking the truth, but living it out. Not just religious commitment, but regeneration. New life. God the Spirit dwelling in you. That's what, he, that's what he's offering. That's what he's trying to lead them to. Now to make this point known, he's now going to take some of the most famous laws, some of the Ten Commandments, and he's going to expose them. He's going to fulfill them. Well, think of it this way. If you think of one of the commandments of God as a deflated balloon... You kind of go, okay, I know what that's for. That's meant to sort of be a certain round size and be something that brings joy. And, but it's just right now kind of flat and rubbery and not much good. And he's going to fill it up with Holy Spirit helium, so to speak, tie it off and show you that it's actually made of indestructible rubber. That's what he's about to do. Here's what he says, verse 21. You have heard it said, to those of old you shall not murder... And whoever commits murder will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother or without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, one of the things that we're going to see here about the heart of the Old Testament is that even in Jesus kind of unpacking this thing and, and fulfilling it, taking it to where it's meant to be, so it's not just a letter but the spirit of the law taking it where it's meant to be, in doing that, listen, we're going to see that what the law is meant to do, what Scripture is meant to do, is teach us, listen, to prioritize our relationships. That's what the law is. The law is about a priority of relationships. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with my people, and that means I'm going to show you how relationships are meant to fall into place. And you read that. You read the Old Testament, you know what you see? God comes first. God's people come second. Among God's people, the poor have to be a priority. The stranger has to be a priority. The person that wants to come in among God's people for shelter, they have to be a priority. You see this kind of thing happening. But Jesus is going to take this further. He, he, he gets on to this thing of, hey, you've heard if you murder, you're going to go to hell. But let me tell you something a little bit further. He says, if you're even angry with your brother without a cause, you're in danger of the judgment. Wow. Here's what Jesus is doing. Listen, he's exposing... A murderous heart. 
See, I used to be able to say I've never killed anyone. But I realize when you read this, I can't say that anymore. In fact, I have to be honest here, and I won't tell you who I've done it to, but I've killed many of you. Yes, in my heart I have. And here's what I mean. When he says, listen, when he says, and I mean this seriously, when he says, if any, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger in judgment. The idea here is a, it's, it's exposing a heart that's so easily frustrated with others. What's wrong with you? I confess my sin. I have felt that way about some of you. Forgive me. I've had that heart. And I'd be willing to bet you've had that heart toward me. (laughs) Because this is how we are. See, we we, want to be like the scribes and Pharisees. I've never killed anybody. In fact, I'm a pacifist. I've refused to go to war. As you get road rage when someone cuts you off. Don't you know how to drive in a roundabout? Are you American or something? <laughs> He's talking about someone who easily gets frustrated with others. Also, notice what he says. He says, uh, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. The idea there, the, the word for Raka is this idea of saying, this person's an imbecile. They're completely inadequate for their job. And you could actually, in the Jewish system, you could get sued for libel if you told somebody else that, you know, hey, that person's an idiot. You don't want to hire them. You could get sued for libel. They could take you to court and say, hey, call me an idiot. I'm not an idiot. I can do this job. Seriously. So they say, look, you, you know, if you call somebody an idiot, if you devalue somebody, you could go before the council. But, look what he says, but whoever says, you fool, which is in some ways a slightly lesser offense, but still, he says, you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. See, again, Jesus is exposing this murderous heart, and it's the kind of heart that ignores others' inherent value. I saw on Facebook a a friend of mine in the States who professes to be a believer. He had his truck stolen. And so he was asking for people to uh, copy and paste this and kind of, here's a license plate and blah, blah, blah. Here's what was last seen. But when he is saying what happened, he says, I'll paraphrase because the words are too harsh uh, to use publicly, though he did it on Facebook, bless him. Some worthless piece of junk stole my truck. Here's where it was seen. Here's the address. Copy and paste. That's what he says. Jesus says when we do that, we're in danger of hellfire. You see, let me make this really clear. He's trying to show us not that the law was wrong, but that we need to understand the spirit of the law and how far this goes. That when God calls us, listen, not to murder, He says clearly, in fact, you can read it, it's in Genesis 9, He says clearly, anybody who takes a life shall have their life taken. Why? Because the life they took was made in the image of God. They have inherent value. And when we treat other human beings as less than human, we are doing this. Whether it's with our words or actions. A friend of mine uh, here often says, oh, that person's worthless when they don't do what they're supposed to do. I don't know what they mean. They're, they're sort of tongue-in-cheek, but still, that's a real horrible thing for us to say. Because you know what it shows? It shows a heart of pride that thinks, I have more value than you. And that is not the perspective of someone who follows God. Someone who follows God, someone who is a Jesus follower specifically, needs to understand that the value that people have is based on the fact they're made in the image of God. This is why some Christians choose to be pacifists. This is why some Christians wrestle with the whole idea. In fact, any thoughtful Christian would wrestle with the whole idea of capital punishment. Whatever your view is on that, you would wrestle with it. This is why all Christians see life as sacred 
and struggle and often would, would rightly vote against abortion. Why? Because it's not about what that baby might become. It's not about what that guy did. It's about they are made in the image of God. They have value. And we go, ah, worthless, fool, raka. Jesus says, do you understand where your heart is in that? Think about how we have been, and I say we, how we have been this last year just in the realm of politics. We treat the other side like they're idiots. And I can say that here comfortably because both sides, many sides are represented in this room. And we do that, don't we? But you know what they are? They're people made in the image of God. Whether their, their decisions are informed, not informed, or informed the wrong way, that is immaterial to how we treat them. Do you understand? This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, listen, I want to prioritize your relationships. And it begins while you, with you recognizing how murderous your own heart can be. And then he goes on to say this. Listen, verse 23. Therefore, he says, if you bring your gift to the altar, that is a, an offering, a sacrifice of offering. Specifically, it seems to indicate a thanksgiving offering. So it's not an offering for sin, but an offering of worship. You following me? Yeah? And so when you bring your thanksgiving offering, when you come to worship, you might say, he says, and there you remember, your brother has something against you. You notice that? Not you have something against your brother, but somebody has something against me. You know what? That guy's still ticked off at me because of that business deal that we made. They went sour. Or that person's still mad at me because I said something, and then when they got sensitive, I'm like, whatever. I blew them off. If you remember someone has something against you, he says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, listen, worship requires reconciliation, not just between us and God, but us and one another. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? What would happen if before we began to sing to Jesus, we stopped and thought about, how do I value these people around me? Is there anybody here that I've offended that I need to get right with? Again, I stand here exposed. But this is the standard that Jesus is setting for people. He's saying, listen, this is what's needed for worship. The scripture says this about how we treat people. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, if someone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. In other words, he doesn't love God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You ever had someone say, I I like Jesus, I just can't stand Christians. You're a liar. That's what the Bible says. That's not me. Scripture says it. Not me. It. This is is what Jesus is trying to say. Listen, it's, it's how can we say, God, I love you, but I hate these people when these people are made in his image. These are people who have inherent value and they are people, listen, for whom Christ died. They're redeemable people. How can we be that way? This is why the scripture says very practically in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do whatever you need to do to reconcile. He didn't say, if it is convenient, as much as depends on you, make peace with all men. He says, if it is possible, do whatever it takes to get right with people. It's hard sometimes. I remember, I remember uh, when I was on staff at the church in California and somebody had been bad-mouthing the lead pastor to me. And I had been saying to him, no, you know, I think you're being unfair. You know, the truth is he's not perfect, but, you know, he, he does try. And yeah, you know, yeah, he's got weaknesses, sure. And basically I was trying to, you know, put out a fire, but I was doing so in a way that I was kind of allowing this person to think, you know, badly, think wrongly, and slander a friend, a brother, my boss, my pastor. 
And I was really convicted. Because even though I said nothing negative, even though I didn't necessarily even agree with the person, I just, I let them sort of do this and say these things. And so I went back and I, and I, I went to the person and said, you know what? I should have just been clear with you. you. You should not have said a single word to me. You should have gone right to him. And if you can't go right to him, you shouldn't say anything to anybody. And then I went to my pastor and I said, you know, I got to say to you, Pete, here's the situation that happened. I don't want to tell you who it is because I don't want you to you know, have to be struggled with feeling frustrated with that person, but here's what happened. And I just apologize for, for not backing you up more. You know, when I said that, I thought he'd be going, no, it's no problem, John. That's, I understand. And at the time, you know what he said? He said, you know what? If you don't have my back, who does? You know, it's about time you realize that that kind of stuff is wrong. And he was really harsh. And I was all... I didn't have to tell you. That's what I'm thinking in my head. I didn't have to tell you what happened. And I, and I try to justify. I try to feel like I'm like David and you're like Saul. And I could have cut your robe and I didn't do it. That's what I was thinking in my head. And man, the Lord was just so heavy on my heart saying, you know what? Is this about you and Pete or is this about you and me? How are you going to deal with this? And I'm so thankful that God did not let me say anything that day. <laughs> and that I walked away and then I just complained to the Lord and said, what's the deal with this? And the Lord showed me that I needed to be understanding about how hard his position is. Something that I came to know now years later, being in that position. See, the, the, the reality is, guys, sometimes... Making peace with somebody else isn't easy. People even appreciate you're trying to make peace. But this is not about pleasing people or getting their appreciation. It's about pleasing the one who's enlisted you to serve. It's about following Jesus. Lord, I want to be at peace with people. I want you to think about, where is this the hardest to do? Isn't it not in our own homes? You know, you always hurt the one you love. It's so true, isn't it? How quick are we to offend our children or our wives? In fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And in my, my Bible, I put in parentheses over a brother, a wife slash child. Because <laughs> I know how easily I can be harsh to my kids, to my wife. And I have to go back and apologize. I can't just kind of say, well, you know, they know I was having a bad day or my job is stressful. No. I need to humble myself. And before I go and try to get right with God, I need to say, you know what, God, to get right with you, I need to get right with them. Can you see why, listen, can you see why we put so much emphasis on relationship? Can you see why you need to somehow be in a small group where you could be known and you can know people? Can you see why we say, okay, we're forcing you for 15 or 20 minutes to have to interact on a Sunday morning so you can't come in and just take off right away? You know why? It's so that we can learn to do this. We can learn to prioritize our relationships and have real loving relationships with one another. Do you realize this is what the Lord wants? This is what God says is worship. He has to be the motivation. If we're not wanting to please Him, you know what will happen? We won't do this with each other. I promise you. If your motivation is just your own relationship with each other, you will give up. And some of you as spouses know exactly what I'm talking about. You would have walked away years ago if it wasn't for Jesus. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have wayward kids. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you who have horrible neighbors know exactly what I'm talking about. Horrible bosses. You know what I'm talking about. If it were not for Jesus being the motivation, you'd just give up. But he needs to be the motivation. We worship him by doing whatever is possible to live peaceably with all people. And then he goes on to say, verse 25, he says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. Now it seems here he's using a an instance of, of uh, somebody being in debt to somebody else. And 
you know, that, that's illegal. That was illegal in these days. They had debtor's prisons like they did here up until a couple hundred years ago. And so he's saying in that situation, he says, you know, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. He says, surely I say to you, you will by no means get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, do you realize the serious consequences of broken relationships? How bad those are. Guys, do you realize that most churches don't split over doctrine? They split over broken relationships, hurt feelings, lack of forgiveness. That's what ends relationships. Do you know the consequences of these kind of broken relationships? Without raising your hands, have any of you ever been, don't raise your hands, I don't want to, we don't want to expose this, but I wonder if any of you have been through a church split. It's horrible. A divorce. Painful. Maybe your parents divorced and you know the consequence. You know what it feels like. It, it still probably rattles you to this day if your parents were divorced. And it doesn't change just because they were divorced if you were already an adult. It's a big deal. Broken relationships have consequences. That's what Jesus is trying to pull out. Listen, Scripture says plainly, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also weep, uh, reap. Um, for he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Don't think you can just live your life and your relationships on your own strength, for your own pleasure and your own purposes and think there won't be seriously bad consequences. Jesus is saying, this is why God gives the law. Thou shalt not murder is not just about not stabbing someone in the heart. It's about valuing people. It's about committing to relationships. It's about wanting there to be reconciliation. Why? Because we serve a God who's reconciled with us. That's why. Lastly, verse 27, almost done. Jesus says, you've heard it said that uh, to those of old you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying, listen, I want to expose not just a murderous heart, but an adulterous heart. And he, of course, gives us verse that Everyone knows this verse really well if you're a believer, especially if you're a man. You've, been heard, you've heard this, 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 uh, this verse. Not that this is, uh, only applies to men, obviously. But there's a reality here that Jesus is saying an adulterous heart isn't just one that has already committed the act. It's one who's longing for the act. I was doing some research this week, um, last couple days, trying to get some statistics on pornography. They're so discouraging, so depressing, I, I, didn't even want to, I don't even want to put them on the screen. I decided not to. It's just so discouraging. It's a pandemic. It's a pandemic outside the church and inside the church. It's, it's bad. It, it has far-reaching consequences Oh, come on, John. What's the problem with a harmless look? It's not a harmless look. Do you realize when we look at pornography, if we look at pornography, men or women, doesn't make a difference. You look at pornography, do you know what you're doing? You are feeding a system, a, 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 a system that basically is, is encouraging human slavery. The sex traffic industry is connected to the porn industry. They are one in the same. Jesus sets the standard because he's calling us to something greater. It's not enough that we say, hey, I haven't committed adultery. I've been faithful to my spouse. Or, hey, I'm married. I'm single. I, I'm not, I can't commit adultery. I'm, I'm not married. But what Jesus is wanting to do is expose not just the fact of, that we are sexually broken as a race, as the human race, we are sexually broken. And we are. And please do not think any of you are not. 
Don't any of you dare think, oh no, I'm not broken. I'm a happily married heterosexual. I'm not broken sexually. Yes, you are. The only, there's only been one human being who is not broken sexually. His name is Jesus. The rest of us are broken. And not only is he wanting to expose that brokenness, but listen, he is calling us to something greater. He's calling us to action. In fact, look at how severe his actions are. Verse 29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Don't let the imagery be lost. I want you to seriously think about what it would take to gouge out your own eye. Think about it. He says, cast, pluck it out, cast it from you. He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and cast it from you. Think about what it would take to saw off your own hand. Don't lose the imagery. He is saying, listen, he is using hyperbole, exaggerating for effect, and we know that for this reason, the problem is not your eye or your hand, it's your heart. But what he's saying is, we need to be radical in wanting to separate ourselves from these kinds of sins. And I again say this exposed as a sexually broken sinner. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, he's talking to his disciples for the benefit of the crowd, if you're going to follow me, here's the deal, there needs to be heart surgery. Your heart has to be cut out and cast aside, and you need a new one. He's wanting to make it clear to his audience, and the Spirit of God wants to make it clear to us, this is why we so desperately need regeneration. We need a heart transplant. Listen, the author of Proverbs says this. He says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Do you know what pride, arrogance, and the perverse mouth is? It's not just, hey, I'm, I'm better than anybody else or look at me, I'm so good at this. Yeah, that's pride, but it's, it's not just that. Pride, arrogance, is me saying, I know better than God. A little look isn't hurt anybody. That's pride and arrogance. Guys, listen. What Jesus is calling his disciples to is real love. And real love always requires separation from anything that separates it, or that threatens it. Real love. If you love being healthy, you have to hate missing going to the gym. You have to hate the junk food binge. If you love being healthy, you have to hate those things. And you guys look at me and go, you obviously don't hate those things. (laughs) If you love your wife... You have to hate anyone who would try to get between you and her. You hate the guy that chats her up at the office. You hate the girl that chats you up at the office. Why? Because you love your spouse. If you love God because you know He first loved you, then we learn to hate the things that would come between us and God. Guys, listen to me. Jesus is talking about serious stuff. So serious, listen, he says, it's better for you to lose an eye than what? Have your whole body be cast into hell. He says, it's better for you to lose a hand than to have your whole body cast into hell. Do you realize that Jesus spoke of hell more than anybody else in Scripture? Jesus did. Do you know why? Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. Now, it, it doesn't, I don't know if it works or not, 
But I do think it was the right thing to do to put a massive label on cigarettes that says smoking kills. And here's the truth. Smoking kills most of the time, but not all the time. The fact is there's a very minute percentage of people who smoke and live to be 90 or 100. It's a fact. I'm not promoting smoking. It's not healthy for you. Don't do it. But that's the truth, isn't it? But here's the deal. Sin kills every single time. The wages of sin is always death. Always. And so Jesus puts this massive warning label that says what? Man, deal with the sin. Listen. Jesus says this about his ability to judge. And I want to be clear here. This is not me judging you. This is not us judging you. We're not judging each other. Jesus is the judge. Jesus says this in John chapter 5. Listen. Jesus says, Most surely I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. He's speaking of himself. And those who hear will live. Did you get that? Because he's the judge, if you listen to him, you live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority, listen, to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying in the same way that God can say, let there be light and there's light, Jesus can say, let there be life and there's life. Let there be regeneration and there's regeneration. Let you who are dead be alive and it happens. He has that kind of authority. He says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Did you notice that? He's talking about a resurrection. Jesus is the judge at the resurrection. Listen, they'll all come forth. He will raise them from the dead. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Do you realize that's the point? Jesus is trying to say, I am the judge, and I will judge sin. And those who refuse to turn from that and put their trust in me, they will have this resurrection of condemnation. But those who trust in me, I'm going to give life. And that more abundantly. I'm going to give life and that eternal. That's what he says. You see, we're, we're, we're doing this series, the words of Jesus, so that you know I am not just spouting to you, we are not just spouting to you some traditional church doctrines. This is what he says. And he says it because he loves us and he wants us to be with him forever. That's why you're created. You weren't created so you could find some brilliant, fulfilling career or have the ultimate fulfilling marriage or the perfect 2.5 children. That is not why you were created. You weren't created so you could do works of ministry that people would applaud you for or that you feel like have some eternal value. That's not why you were created. You were created because God, being love, wants you to know Him. He's the ultimate. And the only thing that separates us from God is our sin. And this is the good news. The Jesus who preached these things came to die for our sin. Jesus, who didn't flinch at exposing our need, also met that need. Don't you see? The Bible says that he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, who did all the law perfectly, he fulfills the requirements of the law. Listen, so that when he dies and rises from the, from the dead, he says, if you put my, your faith in me, if you'll give me your sin, I will pay for that and I will give you my righteousness. That you can stand before your creator God and say, God, I can and will love you with all my heart. And God, I will love these people the way you love them because you have made it so. You spoke it and it will happen. 
That's the gospel. That's the truth that sets us free. See, the heart of the Old Testament is Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. He's the heart. We get caught up by the, the genocides and the science contradictions supposedly about the flood and the creation accounts and we get all mixed up with these things and they're important things but we forget it's about Jesus. It's about our need being revealed. It's about our relationships being prioritized. It's about provoking us to action and here's the action we need. God, I have to trust you. Jesus, I have to trust you. There's nowhere else I can turn. I'm going to ask you guys all to bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's, let's have a minute of reverence. We've talked about some specific things. Jesus brings up some very specific issues in this text. He deals with the issue of relationships and how we treat people. He deals with the issue of sexuality and what we do with ours. He deals with the issue of religiosity. Trying to be religious to appease God. And in every instance, he's the answer. You see, where we have failed to love, he always loved perfectly. Where we have been slaves of our lust, he was sexually whole. Where we have been hypocritically religious, he always loved and obeyed the Father. Jesus says these things because he doesn't want you to put your faith in yourself or into any religious institution. He wants you to put your faith in him. He wants you to trust him. He is trustworthy. Aren't you sick of failing all the time? Isn't it foolish? We fail, and guess who we look at? Ourselves. We fail, we fail again, and we tell ourselves, try harder. How foolish is that? Jump across the Grand Canyon, and you splat at the bottom. Get up and try again. Why? You'll never make that. He calls us to trust in Him, to follow Him, to do the things that He calls us to, not to earn a righteous, a righteousness, but to display a righteousness we've already been given through faith in Him. Repentance is simply us turning away from our sin and turning back to God. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. What is God exposing that you need to repent of this morning? Confess it to Him. Turn from it. Go back to Him. Say, Lord, forgive me. If there's someone you know you've offended, 
Ask the Lord for that grace, that strength to humble yourself before that person and ask for their forgiveness. Do that. Not because that person deserves it, but because Jesus deserves it and that person is made in the image of God. If you've been trying to be religious, going to church, giving your tithe, serving in church, being nice, thinking that that will make you right with God. Ask God to forgive you for your religiosity and ask God to help you to trust in His righteousness alone. And if you're here today and you don't know who this Jesus is that we're talking about, to you it's just some historical figure or some guy in a book and his words seem a little bit cutting, pointed. I want to encourage you to keep investigating. I want to encourage you to ask questions. See, the reason we believe Jesus is the judge and the reason we believe Jesus is so good and worthy to be followed that we want him to rule over our lives is because of how good he is to people, how good his words were, and because just as he said, he died on the cross, just as he said it would happen, it happened. He did that for us, he said, and he rose from the dead. He came back to life. We believe he's going to raise us from the dead because he rose from the dead. It's history. We believe it. Keep asking the questions.